0: Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me this morning in God's word to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're continuing to work our way through the text this morning. For those of you who are visiting with us the first for the first time, I do just want to continue to express to you my sincere appreciation that you're joining with us. Uh, we have a little bit of a different practice than what is common, or what is um, most common, I should say. In other churches, we we go through a book of the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We do that for a couple of reasons. Um, We believe that the Spirit inspired the scriptures in such a way that he did not only inspire the individual verses that are in the Bible, but he inspired the way that those verses would be put together and written. And so we feel that we most honor and most glorify our Lord when we go through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That's the first reason. The second reason is when you do that, the preacher can't get off the hook when it comes to difficult passages. If you're in a church where the pastor is from week to week going from one passage to the next, um, that, that, absolutely the Lord can use that. I don't mean to overly disparage that approach, but um, as a pastor who routinely has to sit down and look at this thing from week to week and, and try to truly wrap my heart and mind around what God is saying, when you're forcing yourself to go through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, You're forced to speak on passages that are difficult that you may not otherwise address. One of those passages happens to be the one that we're looking at this morning. Verse 10 specifically, I'll uh, I'll wind it back to verse 6. We'll start in verse 6 so you can see it in context. And then you're going to see what I'm getting at in verse 10. It's a bit of a paradoxical statement, and we're going to have to work our way through it. 1 Timothy 4, 6, we'll read this chunk of scripture, and as is our custom, we'll then pray and ask always for the Lord's help, uh, because none of us can understand or fully appreciate all that is being said here in God's word without the Spirit guiding us. So, 1 Timothy 4, 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained or nourished in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, I want you to notice that, the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, and here's the tricky, troublesome sort of expression that we're going to sort of work through this morning, the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially or particularly of those who believe, what does that mean exactly? Let's ask God to help us, shall we? Now, Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we come face to face with the scripture written by the Apostle Paul, ultimately inspired and written by your hand, Father. We know that there is an enormous promise that is being given to us. We know that this salvation that Jesus has accomplished in some measure, in some sense, brings blessing and redemption of some form to the whole world, to all people. And yet, we know also, Lord, that you're very clear. There is a coming judgment. There is a day which you have appointed, a reckoning, in which the righteous will inherit eternal life and the wicked will perish to eternal destruction. As we look at this verse this morning, Lord, we recognize here something that's a bit of a tricky thing to understand. In what sense, in what way exactly are you the Savior of all people? What does that mean? We pray, God, that your spirit would help us. We pray, Lord, that you would illuminate the text before us, that you would go ahead of us to help us to understand all that you intend for us to learn from this passage this morning. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Most of you have probably heard of Flint, Michigan. Michigan. It's a community in the States. It's sort of a satellite community of Detroit, Michigan, the legendary auto-making empire that has, in recent times, fallen upon difficulties and struggles. profits aren't as good. People aren't buying as many cars. And as a result, the entire state of Michigan has experienced an economic downturn which has impacted every aspect of the entire state. One community in particular, Flint, Michigan, you probably have heard of it, Uh, During the 2016 presidential election cycle, Flint, Michigan, uh, took on national prominence, international significance. It was reported widely in the news for a number of reasons. It has, over the past 20 years, been in the top 10 list produced by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. It has been in the top 10 list for being one of the poorest communities in all of the United States and it is also on the top 10 list for a far worse reason. It is one of the most violent in the top 10 of most violent communities in the entire nation of the United States. Undoubtedly, and a lot of sociologists will tell you this, that as uh, the economy takes a downward spiral, as there is a lack of opportunity, that lack of opportunity in some sense contributes directly to the rise in crime. And so as you have a rising poverty, right, poverty rate, you're going to have a rising crime rate as well. But no, the reason you probably have heard of Flint, Michigan, particularly during the most recent presidential election cycle, is because of the political leadership in this community. Confronted with a shrinking, contracting budget, in an effort to save money, a decision was made to switch the Flint water supply from processed water that was coming out of Detroit to the Flint River. An untreated water source, which unfortunately, as a result of various chemicals and minerals in the water, leached lead from the aging lead water pipes and infrastructure of the city of Flint. In addition to that, it was untreated for bacteria. Twelve individuals contracted what is known as Legionnaire's disease, a result of drinking water contaminated by bacteria, and they died. In an effort to cover up what was happening in the Flint water supply, the political leaders altered the testing, the test results that were being conducted by the Public Health and Works and Safety Department in order to make it appear as though the levels of lead in the water were lower, far lower than what they actually were. As more and more people continued to report to the hospital and to report symptoms of what could only be known as lead poisoning and Legionnaire's disease, numerous university groups and various academic institutions volunteered out of the goodness of their heart to test the water, to see what was going on, at which point the leadership, the, the mayor's office and, and the government officials who were in charge of the city of Flint threatened them with political action to defend fund their universities and their academic institutions if they continue to poke their nose into the problem with the water supply. Now, I'm not a journalist, but I dare say if you have a group of individuals who are volunteering to test the water for free in a cash-strapped community, and you have a political leadership that says, thanks but no thanks, well, that can't help but reek of a story. And lo and behold, email's were uncovered through freedom of information requests. Schemes were revealed in which the political leadership of Flint, Michigan, were shown clearly to be conspiring in such a way as to cover up the mistake that they had made in drawing water from the Flint River, to cover up the heinous crime of poisoning their own citizens to such a degree that there are 12 clearly documented fatalities that can be attributed directly to the mayor's office. The attorney general for the state of Michigan in 2017 brought manslaughter charges. As you look at the residents of Flint, something interesting has happened. Every known federal agency that has anything to do with public health or public safety, every known federal agency has thrown itself at the city. Millions upon millions, we're talking tens and hundreds of millions of dollars, have been poured into fixing the aging infrastructure, establishing real filtration systems, improving the water quality, and even though testing today shows that there are minimal traces of lead and absolutely no Legionnaire bacteria in the water supply, residents in the city of Flint will not drink the water to this very day. Why? Because they don't trust any leader. And see, this is the reality of all leadership. This is not new to Flint. This is the course of all of human history. Every king that has ever ruled has depended in some measure upon the loyalty of faithful generals and standing armies. Every politician who has ever taken office has depended in some measure upon the contribution of a willing electorate. And when you act in such a manner as to endanger and kill those who are supporting you, because your support, your position hinges directly upon their support, every ruler, every king, every politician, in order to safeguard their own position, has always had to conceal those painful realities from those who support them. So at the end of the day, we all step back and we recognize as good as any leader might be, he is always going to be in some measure tempted if not fully inclined to his own interests above ours. No matter how good any king could be, he is always there to protect his own castle and to look after his own well-being. So that if you've ever been involved in politics, any of you in this room, You know, sooner or later, you come to a point where you become disillusioned. As good as the politicians are, as impassioned as you may be for a particular political leader, they always fail us. It leads to a loss of morale. It's like that ancient Greek myth of Sisyphus who was cursed by the gods to roll a rock up a hill only to see it roll back downhill. You roll it up and it rolls back down. And more and more, that's what it's like to live in the current political le- leadership, in the current political climate. Despite our best efforts to contribute, despite our best efforts to make our society better, we feel that the game is rigged. We feel that no matter what we do, there's no ultimate success, that there will be no lasting good that we can achieve. We feel as though we're taking two steps forward and one step, sorry, one step forward and two steps backwards all the time. This undoubtedly is what Timothy is experiencing at the church in Ephesus. Despite his efforts to preach good doctrine, to preach true scriptural, biblical truth, to emphasize the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are time and again these false teachers who keep coming in, who keep corrupting the truth, who keep subverting it, and at some point, in the same way that the people of Flint become demoralized and say, what's the point? Why do we keep trying? Why should we keep trusting in these people? At some point, you know Timothy has to experience that same degree of discouragement, where he says, what's the point of this? Why do I keep on struggling to preach the truth? Sensing some of that demoralizing spirit, Paul writes to encourage Timothy that as long as he serves Jesus, though we don't see this anywhere else in all the rest of society. As long as Timothy continues to keep serving the Lord Jesus and being loyal to him and faithful to him, there will be a payoff. He makes the statement, bodily training is of some value. He says this in verse 8, but godliness, that is seeking to put God's will first, seeking to do what God wants us to do, seeking to be like God, godliness, training yourself for godliness, has value in every respect, Bodily training, going to the gym, dieting that has minimal value for this life, but training yourself for godliness has eternal value because it has value for this life and the life to come. Paul makes it clear. When he says to Timothy, this is what we're doing, Paul lumps himself in. He uses the first person plural pronoun, verse 9. He says, "This, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance for to this end, we toil and we strive. Paul's statement to Timothy is, you're not in this alone. As discouraging as your circumstances might be, I'm doing the exact same thing. We're both struggling with this. We're both going through the ringer together. We're doing this, and look at where he grounds all of their hope. Look at where he finds all of the enthusiasm and encouragement that he needs to continue pressing on. He brings it right back to Christ. He says, because, this is a haughty clause, this is a purpose clause, not because our efforts will necessarily pay off in our own time before our own eyes, not because we're going to actually see this grand paradise ushered in as a direct result of our efforts. No, Timothy, you and I are just men, but we're continuing to fight the fight. We're continuing to struggle and to go through this difficulty because, purpose clause, here's the foundation. Here's the root. This is what provides all of the energy and all the encouragement that we need to continue going on day after day after day. He's going to say there's a king we serve, not like any other king, and he will save us. This is his statement. Look at what he says. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Verse 10, to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. We can continue in the work of the gospel. We can continue in our efforts to serve the church because unlike any other endeavor, anywhere else on earth, although there is a degree of drudgery here, there is a promise of blessing. If we serve the king, he is the savior of all of us and he will be victorious even though you and I may not get to see it. Now, that is an amazing promise. I remember when I was in high school, I was working a part-time job. I was installing these 18-dish Digivision satellite, direct satellite, you know, the mini satellite dishes for cable. I was installing these things, and I was working for a company, and I was actually making really good money for a high school student. I mean, I I could make about $30,000 in a summer installing these things. Now, because there was so much money to be had over the course of two, two and a half months worth of work, there were lots of high school students that were signing up for this. It wasn't the most glamorous work. You had to crawl around in an attic with the insulation uh, in Texas heat, which... I know that you think you know what heat is, but let me reassure you, Texas heat is way, way hotter. So there we are in the attic in Texas in the summertime drilling and installing satellite dishes and, and cable and all of this sort of stuff and running coax and all this and rolling around the insulation and getting in, itchy and, and all of that, but making really good money. As I said, there was such good money involved that lots of high school students signed up for it so that I found myself working amongst colleagues that were wildly immature wildly irresponsible and had a penchant for blaming everyone around them when something catastrophic happened like they drilled a hole through the roof or they put their foot through the ceiling many of which many times that happened and if you ever partnered with a guy on a job you were liable for the blame if something went wrong. And one such event happened to me in which I went out and I partnered with a guy on a job. We installed everything. Everything was fine. At the end, as you're bidding farewell to the customer, uh, as, as every TELUS guy or every Shaw cable man has ever done, they give you their business card and that way, if there are any problems, you know you can call them directly. And so we're wrapping this job up. I'm partnering with this other guy. He gives the customer his business card. We leave. Turns out there was a little bit of a problem with uh, the cabling. Uh, she the, the customer had decided afterwards. She didn't like the way it had been run along the eave of one roof. It was unsightly. She wanted it to be moved. She called. My partner went back to the job site unbeknownst to me and put his foot through the ceiling and then left the job site with a hole and insulation coming into the poor client's living room. So she called, filed a complaint, which she was right to do, And they called me and this other fellow into the office and said, which of you done it? Clay Camp did it. And I'm sitting there struggling like, well, when we left the job site, it was good. I don't remember this happening. I didn't know he'd gone back after the fact. Guess who got fired? (laughs) We both did. Because after a few seconds, I said, no, no, that wasn't me, that was him. It was him, it was him. Hey, look, we're paying... High school kids, $30,000 for two and a half months worth of work. We don't need either one of you. And it's in that moment where, despite your best efforts, despite your professionalism, your expertise, your commitment to doing the job right, you come face to face as a 17 year old kid with the fact that we live in a world that is rigged. The game is stacked against us. We've all known those moments in which we were truly innocent. And yet we could not get around the blowback from a sinful, fallen world. I know of another fellow. Take it from the other perspective. He's a Christian fellow, walked with the Lord. After many, many years of prayer and after having experienced a number of individuals who struggle with renal kidney failure, he came to the conclusion that what he wanted to do was he wanted to give his kidney to someone who was deserving of it. Perhaps a child, somebody who was struggling with renal failure, wanted to donate one of his kidneys. Went through the whole process, got poked and prodded, got scanned and x-rayed and MRI'd and got all the stuff, blood drawn, all this stuff. Went through the whole rigmarole, and at the end of it all, they said, you know what, you're a perfect candidate. Uh, we'll call you soon and let you know about some different potential recipients that you can donate your kidney to. And he was excited. He was doing a good deed. He was serving the Lord. They called him back a week later and said, we're sorry. We've discovered actually that your outer membrane of your kidney, you have stage four kidney disease. You're not able to to donate because your kidney is actually, it's perfectly functioning now, but it's on an what we call an accelerated expiration date. So even though all your tests came back initially positive, the biopsy, once we stuck that thing under a microscope, revealed, you can't actually donate one of your kidneys. You're gonna need both of them. Now, on the one hand, I get canned for doing nothing wrong, just doing my job. And on the other hand, this poor fellow, he can't even do something good when he wants to do good, he's prohibited from doing good, all of us are dependent upon the gracious intervention of God in our lives. We live in this world where we get unjustly punished and even when we would do something righteous, we cannot do righteousness apart from God. This is the true nature of how badly Satan has destroyed this world. He has utterly destroyed the world in which we live. Now, this isn't a moment for us to despair. This isn't a moment for us to start to lose hope. Paul calls Timothy and you and me back to a focus on Christ. He makes the statement, for to this end we toil and strive, a statement which apart from Christ is utterly meaningless. We can do no good. We can achieve no lasting success. We will invariably be punished for things that aren't even our fault. We live in a horrific situation, but we can still toil, and we can still strive to proclaim the truth of Christ because here is the purpose clause. Jesus is the Savior of all people we will one day see his salvation coming for all people. Now, for some of the theologians in the room here, you're like, oh, okay, okay, wait wait a second, wait a second. I understand that according to the gospel, if we're going to be saved, we've got to place our faith in Jesus, right? Yes, good, yes, that's all orthodox. I'm with you, you're with me, we're good. Now we're going to take a walk on the... We have to look at this a little bit, okay? (laughs) I don't want to say we're going to take a walk on the heretical side, but we do need to walk carefully through this passage. Jesus is the Savior of all people, but there is a distinction between the salvation he offers to all of humanity as opposed to the salvation he offers to the elect. This is the undeniable meaning of this verse. He makes the statement, We have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people. Now, I fully admit to you that is a troubling statement. In what sense? In what capacity? But the fact that there is a distinction between the salvation offered to all people as opposed to the salvation offered to the elect is only further solidified by the very next expression. He makes the statement, he is the Savior of all people. Troubling, not sure what that means. Especially, this Greek word could also be translated particularly, of those who believe, meaning if you just take it at face value, there is a salvation that is there for everyone, but there is a particular salvation for those who believe in Jesus. So there is a distinction between the salvation that is available to all the world in which Christ is going to bring some measure of blessing, some measure of redemption on the whole world. There is a distinction between that versus the full redemption and the full blessing that Christ is going to bring on those who believe in him. So this passage in no way, shape, or form is teaching what is commonly referred to as universalism, this idea that all of us, one way or another, are going to end up in heaven. That passage isn't, this passage is not teaching that because of the distinction that Paul draws right there within the text. There is a particular salvation, a salvation especially or particularly for those who believe and there is also a salvation for the whole world, which leads us to this question. If the whole world does not experience the fullness of salvation, then in what sense, what capacity does the whole world experience any salvation? In First John chapter 3, the apostle John makes the statement that Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. One way we can understand that is that Satan, as he's operating in the realm of mankind, he is operating with a goal, a motivation of hurting God the Father. He hates the Father. He is in rebellion against God. And the way that he can strike at God, he can't do anything directly to him, but he can do something to us. And so he comes in the garden. He tempts Eve. He tempts Adam and Eve. The whole fall, that whole thing happens. And in a sense, what Satan did there in the garden is kind of like a bomb maker. Kind of like an arsonist who has come into a home, who has established a very threatening, very lethal weapon of murder, deception, namely, and like a skilled bomb maker, like a skilled arsonist, he strikes the match, he lights the fuse, and the bomb explodes. Those who reside in that home are horribly burned, blown to bits. The house, exp- exp- uh, the house splinters into a thousand pieces as the explosion flies outward. Now, a lot of Christians have this perspective that what Jesus is doing is he is reaching into the rubble and he is one by one selecting individuals whom he will restore to life. That is true, but that is not a complete understanding of all that God is doing. When John makes the statement in 1 John 3 that he has come to destroy the works of the devil, we need to understand there are two elements to this. There is the devil himself, Which has to be dealt with. There is Satan who has to be bound and banished and destroyed. But there is also all of the things that he has accomplished, all of the ways in which he has broken the world around us. And when the statement is made in 1 John 3 that Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil, we understand that the devil's work is to destroy, which means that Jesus' work is to heal, to repair. And so in a sense, as we consider this rapidly expanding explosion, this this fireball of cloud and smoke and debris, we need to understand that the picture that is being presented to us in the gospel is that Jesus has come not to reach into the ashes and the rubble to pull individuals out, but rather to contain the explosion, to begin reversing the explosion, to begin reversing the curse, restoring creation, And redeeming humanity. In a sense, what Christ is doing is he is stopping the explosion and he is pushing it back in to the bomb that Satan has built. He is dismantling the bomb. He is healing the victims who are there in the house, all of the victims. And finally, he is destroying and removing Satan from our midst. In this sense, there is salvation that is coming to all people. Let's look at that first. The first aspect, he is going to redeem history. There are four elements to this. Follow me carefully now. This is where he reverses the explosion, this is where the house is repaired. Don't flip there, but just listen. This is promised to us in Isaiah chapter 11. Verses 1 to 10 There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. This is talking about Jesus. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and he will decide with equity. For the meek of the earth. Now, think about that statement. Equity. This is the thing we don't see anywhere else in any of our leaders. Who is number one? They're number one. And their interests will often come at the expense of our interests. And yet, the promise of the scripture is that Jesus will judge the nations with equity. Think about that. The word equity, to be equal. He won't favor or privilege one group of individuals over the other. He will decide with pure righteousness and justice between all parties. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins, He's going to come as a king. And what does this kingdom look like? The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. A little child shall lead them. It's probably one of the most twisted verses ever taken out of context The idea here is that a little child will not fear anything from these ferocious beasts. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down, the lion shall eat straw like at the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord." The earth shall be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, the promise here is that God, through Christ, is going to see to it that human history has a happy ending. The promise here is that this world is not going to end on the sour note of evil and wicked politicians and bad and corrupt government. There's a government coming with Jesus as king. And unlike any politician, he isn't going to stick his finger in the air to see which way the winds are blowing. He does not in any way, shape, or form have to lean upon any supporters. He doesn't have to secure any votes he will simply rule, and he will always rule with fairness because he has secured his position through suffering on the cross, atoning for all mankind. The scriptures promise that Jesus will rule and that it will be a wonderful paradise where animals that are natural predators and prey to one another no longer fear each other. The scriptures also promise us in Zechariah 14. Everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem, they shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. There's a hint here of something. We recognize this morning rain, flooding happening in Cache Creek. We understand that we live in a world that is increasingly spinning and spiraling out of control, and yet... When the king comes, he won't simply govern the affairs of men. He will govern the affairs of men, and he will also govern the earth, the stars, and the sky. Now, this is fanciful, wishful, imaginative thinking on my part. I have no scripture verse that would even indicate that such a thing would ever happen, but knowing that God is omnipotent and all-powerful, I can tell you, we worship a God whom, if he wants, in this day and age, if he wants... He could, with a word, ask the stars to realign themselves in the night sky. If he wanted to wish you a happy birthday, he could spell it out in the stars at night and then, with a wave of his hand, order them back into their proper place. He can do that. Not only will he redeem history, not only will he establish a reign of righteousness, he will restore our bodies, all bodies. All hurts will be healed, all death will be reversed, whether you are righteous or wicked, whether your fate is in heaven with the Lord or in hell. The scriptures promise in First Corinthians 15, 21 to 26, this is Paul writing, for as by one man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Here is where God steps into the ashes of the house that he is rebuilding, and he pulls every victim up, and he restores them to the life they should have had you and I, we know nothing but cursed bodies. We know nothing but disease and sickness. Little kids are born with heart murmurs and all kinds, of, all kinds of illnesses and struggles that when we look at a child, we think to ourselves they shouldn't have that. But whether they have that from an early age, we all experience the disease and the death that comes to all of us in later ages. Now, some of you in this room are be like, quit whining, Clay Camp. I know some of you have experienced illness to a far greater degree than I have. I just know for my own sake, more and more, it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. Your back hurts, and I know some of you are like, don't even talk to me about your back hurting. You're pathetic. You know, I know that's what you're thinking. But uh, we've all experienced it, working hard all day, your fingers blister, your back is hurting, your feet are tired, you go home, you go to bed, you think I need like two or three days to recover. But no, you get eight hours and then you're right back at it again. The scriptures promise that all of us, the righteous or the wicked, all of us will taste and know a life of redeemed bodies. John Stott, the famous Anglican minister, was routinely told at the door of his church as he wished uh, parishioners farewell for the week. He was routinely told by members of his congregation, Oh, you have such a love for souls. And this bugged John Stott so much that he came up with a response that he gives to everyone. One day a lady said to him, you have such a love for souls. He said, I don't love souls. I don't love souls. He says, I love souls and bodies. I love bodies with souls. I love the created order that God intended. And more than this, I love soul bodies that are together in the assembly of the redeemed. That's what I love. And that's the truth of what Christ loves. You are created to have a body. You are born into a world which knows nothing but the immediate death of that body from the moment you take your first breath. Slow process begins right away for all of us. You experience a season of growth and health and vitality, and very soon you start the long, gradual descent of decay. Christ will restore all people from that. He will destroy Satan. In Ezekiel 28, 16 and 19, in the abundance, this is God talking to Satan. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of holy fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, so I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes upon you. Increasingly, when anyone stands up for the truth of God, when any Christian goes on the news and says, "I believe the Bible, and I believe this is what the Bible says about this particular issue," increasingly, everyone ridicules. He is scorned in the media. there is shame that is heaped upon him for standing up for the truth of what God says, and God's promises, at the end of days, Satan is the one who is going to be ashamed. I'll read it to you again. I expose you before kings to feast their eyes upon you. He goes on further. You will be consumed. I will turn you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. A day is coming in which wickedness will be the thing that is shameful. A day is coming in which where this world now glories and exalts in sinful behavior, a day is coming in which no one will ever again be proud of the life that they lived before they knew Jesus. No one ever again will be happy to be progressive or on the cutting edge of immorality. There is a day coming in which we will delight in righteousness and we will regard with horror those who have pursued wickedness. And Satan, whom Paul says is now clothed as an angel of light, will be stripped bare of those vestments. And he will be held up for all of you that have ever in your life known even a moment's worth of ridicule or scorn for simply naming the name of Christ. You will see Satan, the one who rejected God and he will be the one scorned. Which brings us to this next passage in 1 Timothy. All of us will be able to see the judgment of Satan. All of us will be able to see the healing and the restoration of our bodies. All of us, all of us will be able to see the redemption of the earth and the happy ending to history and time but not all of us will experience these blessings eternally. Paul's statement here is, we have set our hope on the living God who is the savior of all people, particularly or especially of those who believe. All of us will experience those benefits, but for some, the joy of being able to see a redeemed earth a happy place where sin is rightfully scorned and righteousness is rightfully celebrated. That will be a fleeting sight for quickly follows the judgment. God is the Savior, particularly of those who believe. This passage I've been quoting to you about how Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. I'll read it to you in full little children let no one deceive you whoever practices righteousness is righteous as Jesus is righteous and whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning and the reason that the son of god appeared to destroy the reason the son of god appeared was to destroy the works of the devil Increasingly in churches, we get into these conversations, I know I'm saved by grace, so knowing that I have grace, the grace of God in my life, is it okay to do this? What about this? Can I take it a step further and do this? The fact that you're asking questions that lead in that direction, tell me that you're not desiring to pursue the other direction. If your heart is to go as far as you can go, to get away with as much as you can possibly get away with, then your heart is not to abide in Christ. We're not talking about what behaviors are permissible, what things you can get away from. Hear me carefully. Jesus Christ can forgive any sin. Jesus Christ can cover over any transgression. He can redeem you from any wickedness, any wrong that you've ever done. But all of this, of course, assumes that you want to be with Christ. All of this assumes that you want to abide with Jesus. If your desire is to come to an understanding of of the fact that there is a God who is going to judge, and you understand the horror of that judgment, and your desire is to somehow get out of that judgment without ever desiring to pursue a relationship with Jesus, to be in Christ, to walk with Christ, then you have never received the get-out-of-jail-free card. And if any pastor has ever said to you that you can have forgiveness of sins without repentance— If any pastor has ever said to you, just say this prayer, just come down here, repeat after me, and go through these motions, pat you on the back, and send you out the back door and says, you're good. See you in heaven. You have been grossly misled and horrifically deceived by those who are called to guide you and to shepherd you into truth. Why would you want anything besides Jesus? I've known him since I was seven. I have not always walked faithfully with him. And every time I did wrong, I felt bad, and I knew he was there poking me, saying, this isn't right. In 38 years, I've never gone hungry. I've never been without clothing. I've never, ever been without a home. Privileges which are not guaranteed but which I enjoy nonetheless. In my time of walking with Christ, when I have pursued him, the friends that he has brought to me, the love that he has showered upon me, and the joy that he has put in my heart, it is so much more delightful than the fleeting temptations that this devil puts before me. When I say to you, church, if you want to go to heaven, repent of your sins and trust and set your hope upon the Lord Jesus Christ, if you hear that word repent and you immediately think of a drudgery, of a legalism, of a, a just a harsh call to obedience, then you have no idea the joy that is being offered and presented to you in the simple act of repentance. Repentance. As we come to a conclusion this morning, the reason why any of us can work and serve the Lord Jesus is because we have this promise that Christ is returning. We have set our hope on him and he plans to bring a righteousness to all the earth. He plans to heal all people but he is coming in judgment. For those of us who have trusted and hoped in him, that means that there will be no more politicians like what we see in Flint who take advantage of us. That means there will be no more individuals mocking us and ridiculing us because we love him for who he is. For those of us who have begun a relationship with Jesus, it's a glorious promise. If I say to you that Jesus is coming back, and you feel a sense of dread, Don't leave here today without knowing him. Come and speak to one of the pastors. Come and talk to me. There's joy in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son. We thank you that we have this promise of redemption in knowing him. We thank you, God, that the world will one day be put right, that what is upside down will be put right side up, the wickedness that is currently celebrated will one day be abolished. And we look forward to that glorious day, Lord. We can't help but anticipate it and to wonder at it. We pray, Lord, that as we set our hope on you, as we set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe, we say to you that we do believe in you and we look forward to your coming. Come quickly, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.